0: Are you looking for a fun and informative podcast all about training working dogs? Look no further than the LWDG Poddog. This weekly show is hosted by me, Joanne Parrott, founder of the Ladies Working Dog Group, and I chat to experienced trainers and experts in the field who will give you helpful tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or you've been working dogs for years, this podcast will have something for you. So pull up a chair, pour yourself a cup of coffee, and tune in to LWDG Pod Dog and let us help you build a better bond with your best friend. Hello, and welcome to another episode of LWDG Pod Dog. This week, we're going to be talking about a day in the life of a country life journalist. Now, many of you will know the lady that I am speaking to tonight. Paul Lesa is an icon. On Instagram and as features editor for the magazine. How are you today, Paula?
1: I'm really well. Thanks, Jay. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So before we get into like our conversation piece for the podcast today, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Okay, so um I am a gamekeeper's daughter. And I am married to a retired gamekeeper. Um, Now you can just hear the terrier barking in the background because that's my husband about to come into the house. You can always rely on my dogs to um, be chatty. But um, yes, so I've I've grown up in the countryside. It's something that I care very deeply about. I feel it's a part of my soul. Um, And so I I feel very fortunate um, that my career in journalism has Led me to a job um, for a magazine that really celebrates the countryside, and you know is is an absolute pleasure to to work for every you know producing such a brilliant magazine every week.
0: So very much roots firmly within the British countryside. How did um, somebody with that upbringing decide I'm going to go into journalism?
1: Well very good question because actually when I was younger I was very shy Um, and although I loved reading and I loved reading the newspaper and I used to devour my dad's copy of Shooting Times every week I had this perception of journalists and thought that they were sort of very hard-nosed tough people and I wasn't sure that I would be able to do it or you know although I loved writing and reading um, but I did some work experience at my local newspaper in Devon, the Sidmouth Herald. And of course, I, I very quickly found that it wasn't like that at all. And actually, if you are a warm, empathetic person and you like talking to people and you try very hard to get your facts right and, you know, write everything down correctly that you could do just as well so yes at the age of 16 I I, you know I did find that I you know could hopefully do it and I I haven't I haven't looked back since.
0: So was your plan to always do journalism around countryside sport and countryside background or as it when you started out was you like wanting to maybe go as a young girl into like fashion or you know those type of things?
1: Yeah well I initially I wanted to be I wanted to be a sports reporter and uh, that's how I got my first sort of front page story on the Sidmouth Herald was I went up to badminton horse trials when Mary King our sort of local event rider from Sidmouth was within her heyday and when she won and I managed to get an interview with her precocious young girl as I was and I also got um, a picture of her as well sort of, jumping um this amazing fence into the into the lake at badminton so that was sort of like my big um first splash and yeah that's that's what I wanted to do and um after I so I actually went and did a degree in journalism at the London College of Printing which I can tell you was an education in itself having grown up in the sticks in East Devon to then go to college in elephant in castle in London was um, quite eye-opening shall we say and and then once I graduated I was offered a job with the Sidmouth Herald and I did that for two years, Um, got paid £7,000 a year and did all the sort of you know basic things that you need to do as a cub reporter. So I went to council meetings, I covered the local magistrates court I you know, developed relationships with the local police stations, everything you could try to, to do to sort of reflect the, the local news as, as best you can. And it was a fantastic job. And then I got my first job in magazines uh, for Horse and Hound magazine. I was young rider and pony club editor because it just so happened. That at that time they were looking for young journalists with newspaper experience who obviously knew about the countryside. And as well as being a keeper's daughter, I was very horsey at that stage. So uh, I, you know, it was, it was quite a quite a good fit. And I, you know, I soon realized that actually um, magazine journalism um, and journalism that related to the countryside and my life um, was a was a good way to go. And I haven't I haven't deviated from that. I'm always fascinated
0: when I talk to people how how lives are intertwined, but not connected. Like, I grew up reading The Horse and Hound, very much a horsey girl through and through. So I probably at one point, you know, sat and, and read your stuff. And, you know, you never see what's coming in the future. Of course, we can't. But there is that, like, theme, I suppose, where you all sort of go in one direction, one flow that's controlled by your passions, the things you are interested in. So you were in the Horse and Hounds writing this sort of piece regularly that probably myself and other people listening to this have read. How did you go from there to where
1: you are now? Well, you've hit the nail on the head, Joe, because it's it's all about people, and it's all about the people that you meet along the way, isn't it? And I think that this is a fascinating thing about the field sports community and the dog community is that it's actually quite a small world. So you tend to um, bump into the same people as you go through your life. So so coincidentally, the gentleman who gave me or, you know, uh, decided I would get this job on Horse and Hound is my now editor, Mark Hedges, who is editor of Country Life and at that stage was deputy editor of Horse and Hound so um he obviously perhaps you know saw something in me um that he liked and he felt he could rely on and hopefully um still does so we've worked together very closely for for 30 years um same with other people that i work with now so kate green our deputy editor used to be editor of eventing magazine also worked for horse and hound so you find these brilliant people who um, you know, basically love and trust you. And that that's that's what it's about. So um I, I worked for Horse and Hound for um it was it was three years altogether. It was a very short <laughs> career in my early 20s. And I ended up, I was promoted to be racing editor, which was again an absolutely brilliant job. And then um Mark Hedges. You Now, I mean, I'm sure hopefully some of the listeners will remember this. He became editor of Shooting Times and he was very honest about it at the time. Although he had done a lot of shooting, he didn't really know the ins and outs, perhaps, of the industry or, you know, or of, of shooting, really. And, and so when he moved over to Shooting Times, he said, can you find me a gamekeeper who will be prepared to write a weekly column about his job? um gave me quite a long list of what he wanted from this chap he wanted him to be a member of basque game conservancy the national gamekeepers organization that had just started in those days he said he's got to be good looking he's got to be articulate he's got to be intelligent he's got to be this whole thing and um i had well and basically this man um turned out to be my now husband um so simon i had met simon he was a gamekeeper in gloucestershire at the time uh he was interesting because he had been a drummer in a punk band before he was a gamekeeper he was i'd met him through the national gamekeepers organization because my dad had sort of helpfully suggested that i do their newsletter which i I really didn't need another part-time job when i was on horse and hound but anyway that's what dads do isn't it um and Simon's dad was um, a uh, conservative MP for thirty years, so Simon had this sort of, you know, and he was very sort of outspoken, has very progressive views about shooting and gamekeeping. So I knew that he would be would be good for this column, and um, yeah. So so not <laughs> Mark not only gave me my present job, but also found me my husband. So
0: so you're very thankful to him. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So now working with um, country life, it's not miles away from Horse and Hound, but it is now a a much broader base of information that people want to read about. What what made you think that this was going to be like the job for you?
1: Okay, well, so this was quite organic as well. So when I I left Horse and Hound, um. Uh, quite soon so Simon and I did this uh, I was his ghost writer with his column for Shooting Times for about two years and then he moved from Gloucestershire and got and became head keeper at Beaver Estate in Leicestershire and so I decided to to leave London because that's where Horse and Hound was based at the time and go freelance and um, because you know I wanted to work my dogs I've always um, I've always had Labradors I've always loved picking up so and I wanted to be you know a part of my husband's life as well so I went freelance and I started so I I freelanced for Horse and Hound for Country Life for the field for Shooting Times you know the Shooting Gazette um as you know there's plenty of um magazines you know with within that area and I had a I had a lovely time um and then we went to Holcomb in Norfolk and again I continued because as long as I had an internet connection I could work for whoever, it didn't really matter. And I quite often get up at sort of four or five o'clock in the morning, write an article um, and then go out picking up because I didn't want, to, didn't want to miss the, miss the shoot days. And um, but then um, latterly, my husband got a job as headkeeper on the Langham Moor demonstration project in Dumfrieshire in Scotland. And it, we moved up there and it was an incredible experience. It was a huge challenge for my husband. But for the first time, I wasn't as involved uh, in in the estate. And also it was at the start of the recession in 2008. And a lot of my work dropped off and I found that I was spending increasing amounts of time at home on my own. And if I'm honest, I I actually became very lonely and very depressed and wasn't quite, I didn't really understand what was happening. Because I would say I'm quite um, positive, a sort of, um, you know, I'm glass half full rather than half empty. So it took me a while to work it out. And of course, Simon was extremely busy. You know, it's a huge um, tracts of land up there. It's um, one of the Duke of Buccleuch's grouse moors, 90,000 acres. The project area is 30,000 acres. He was loving it. Had a great team of gamekeepers trying to restore this moor and um, get driven grouse shooting back while maintaining the population of hen harriers. So, um, it, you know, it was quite a test for us as a couple. And I, I was still doing freelance work for Country Life, and then. The features editor said to me that she was pregnant she was going to be going off on maternity leave would I be interested in covering her job now see this is quite difficult because Country Life is based in London and how was I going to do this um but fortunately I bumped into another friend at Badminton Horse Trails that year and she had said to me look Paula if you need to come and do some work in London then you can come and stay with me and actually I'm forever grateful to my friend Beanie because if she hadn't have said that then I probably wouldn't have got this job so it goes back to what we were saying about people on in your area and and helping you out and um so I said to my husband look I this is a bit of a big ask but I, I you know, there's this possibility of this job in London what do you think I'd really like to do it and he said well look I'd you know, don't really want you to go, but I know that you're unhappy and we're a team. So if there's any way that you can make it work where you go down and work in London during the week and then come home to Scotland at the weekends. And that's what we did. And long story short, I ended up doing two spells of maternity cover back to back. And and then I eventually got got the job. And I just, it's my absolute dream job. And I feel so grateful. To do it,
0: it's really interesting listening to you about like the relationship with um, your other half. Because myself and my husband were very much in some ways similar. We, we've never had to be that far apart. But you, if you're very much love the work you do, he's an outdoor activities manager. He absolutely loves it. He he thinks nothing more exciting than jumping into water or riding a quad bike. You know, he really loves it. And and when you're very much both passionate what you do you have to sometimes allow the other person's space to do it don't you like there's been times I've said to him like "I'm, I'm going to Prague or Barcelona and I'm going to be gone for five days and you're going to have to be everything in the house and he's like go or he said I've got to go to Malta or somewhere and I'm going to do this and I'm like go because that's the really important thing about strong relationships they allow the other person to grow
1: Definitely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's as a young woman, it wasn't something that I appreciated, but it's it's so true. And actually it worked for us because Simon's 17 years older than me. So we for a while we'd sort of I mean, we ended up eventually buying a, a flat in South London so that I could. I could stay down there during the week and then come back, and it was quite good actually. You know, because Simon would take me to the train station at the start of the week and then pick me up at the end of the week, so it was (laughs) it was quite romantic really. But uh, eventually, um, Simon decided to retire from his role, and we ended up moving back to the West Country, which is something I'd always wanted to do because that's you know where I where I grew up. So we now have our own lovely place. Uh, near Sherbourne in Dorset and and obviously and also because of the pandemic of course you don't you know goodness me I used to get on the train every day and can't believe that I used to do it I used to catch the seven o'clock train every every day but I now work from home four days a week and just go into London one day a week so actually it's 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 all worked out brilliantly and I also think it's kind of it's better for my job because again I'm closer to the environment that I write about and the articles that I commission anyway, rather than being in London all the time. so
0: the pandemic, I think, completely changed perspective on how we work, doesn't it? It, yes. it made it very clear to organizations, and employers that maybe would never have thought that their employees yes. could do it that actually it was better for uh, you know productivity for people to be in environments that they enjoyed.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, it has changed our lives. There's, there's 20 of us who work for the magazine and it has allowed us to live in places where we want to live. And uh, I honestly, I think we are we are more more productive as well. Those of us who, who you know, whose job sometimes in, involves writing, it's far easier to do it quietly at home than it is in a busy office where someone, you know, you, you could just have thought up the best sentence in the world and then someone will come over and ask you a question and you completely lose that, that train of thought. So um, I, think, I think we very much have the, the best of both worlds at the moment.
0: So now you, you are living somewhere you love with the person you love and you are responsible for the features in what is a very established magazine for Britain. How does that feel? What's it like to work for a 125-year-old magazine?
1: Well, I, don't, I can't believe it, really. I sometimes have to pinch myself that this shy, uh, little, you know, unassuming uh, gamekeeper's daughter from Devon managed to get this job. But, but there you go. I think that it it's just a, it's a good fit. It aligns with everything that um, means so much to me. I've, I've lived and worked in the countryside all my life and obviously through my dad's job and my husband's job and, and, and all the people I, you know, I know so well. I know how passionate people are about the countryside, how hard they work to make sure that it it continues to thrive. And also that, you know, that camaraderie and love of, you know, between the people who who, you know, love field sports, who love working their dogs. I think it's such a special thing, and I feel so privileged to be able to sort of be a be a small part of that through my job. I mean, on a, on a day to day basis, I'm I'm more of a commissioning editor than a writer, so um, my job is sort of quite behind the scenes. Um, a lot of the general features in the magazine, I will have either thought of the idea or commissioned someone else to write the idea. So Spend a lot of time basically bossing people about, um, saying, you know, will you write this article? Will you write 1,400 words on this? Will you make sure that it covers these topics? And then it comes in, and um, and then we have to check that it's okay. And if it's not okay, it's a bit like doing your homework wrong. I'm afraid it, it very politely goes back to the person and we say look can you have another go at this it's not it's not quite how we wanted although to be fair we don't do that that often because we're very careful in the way that we brief things um and and then once the copy comes in we have the fun part really of working with the rest of the team so uh the deputy features editor and i will have a meeting with the pictures department. And the art department. So we'll talk to the picture editors about what images we might like to illustrate a piece, whether we're going to commission an illustration. Um, and that, you know, that's great. And then we work on the headlines, get the best headlines we can, um, and then the copy goes to the sub-editors, and again, they will fact check everything and make sure everything everything is um is correct. And then the designers will design the layouts and and then we get to look at those layouts and again spend a lot of time making sure that they look as good as they can be and we present them to the editor um and and then and it's like this sort of big roller coaster that it never stops because because it's a weekly it's the only perfect bound weekly on the newsstands you know it it goes to press every friday and you've got to do it if you don't do it there's going to be there's going to be a big hole or big space on the pages and I cannot tell you um you know the actual absolute pride of having this thing you know this beautiful production in in your hands that all of you have worked so hard to produce and that really does reflect um why the countryside and its people is so important and it is the other gratifying thing is that people more and more people want to read this so in an age when, let's be honest, a lot of publications, their readership numbers are, are going down the pan because we we consume our media so differently these days. I mean, even talking like this, isn't it? I mean, podcast is a, you know, a, a relatively new thing. So there's many, there are many other ways that people can spend their time as opposed to reading a good old-fashioned magazine. But um, we're so happy that so many people continue to want to read our magazine. And, and so, therefore, we strive every, every week to make it the very best that we can do.
0: It is amazing how, you know, just how the world has changed. It? Like I said, social media, the amount of things vying for our attention. On top of that, though, I think the countryside have to fight against This huge social media presence changing people's perspective of the countryside and not always in a great great way, in a very negative way. When you see um, TV, you know, TV people really damaging the countryside, very much putting their biased perspective on what's going on. There must be a sense in your organisation that you really do have to keep on putting forward the best of of what the
1: countryside really does
0: offer
1: for sure for sure like you say you hit the nail on the head there joe there's so much going on on social media and it's very powerful and um you know it would be remiss of us to to ignore it because there are people that, you know that know how to use it very well so we've always said at country life we're we're not political but we are for the countryside, so what we try to do is make sure that we put um, a, a balanced view across, and obviously it's not just you know lovely, colourful, pretty stories about wildlife. We also um, the news we have four news pages every week where we we try to make sure that we are putting across an, an accurate trail of of things that are affecting people that week and we also have a very strong sort of leader opinion well we have a leader opinion column at the front and we have another column called Agrameans, which is a country crusader anonymous um, person who writes very punchy articles so yes we do feel it is incumbent on us to to speak up and um and put across views that like you say may not be um be being heard in the mainstream media
0: i always think as well i'm not i'm very much um probably like you said i don't i don't want to get into politics but i do want the truth to always be told There's, it's very easy for things to be put a slant upon to suit the person given the story and I always think that the more we do to show the countryside as is, but also if the value it plays, because I do believe that as a nation, we've lost the perspective of, of what the countryside is. It's not just a green playing space, which, you know, I see my, my husband and the work he does and thousands upon thousands of people coming into the countryside to play and enjoy it. And so they should. But those people need to have a real clear perspective and understanding that whilst they enjoy playing in it, it is an industry, it is an environment, it is a workplace. And do you feel within your magazine is getting that balance of showing people, look, there's loads of stuff you can enjoy and love, but you also have to take on board what Countryside
1: does? Yes, yes, I entirely agree with you. I mean, our, our magazine really was started as a sort of idyllic view in you know in the late 1890s of um how you know of architecture of architecture really of of country houses and that's why it has that 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 strong base it was sort of like a romantic ideal um for p- people who wanted to <laughs> build these lovely places but there's one thing that's always struck me and having been privileged to live and work on so many beautiful estates around the country that Somebody once said to me when we lived at Holcomb, I used to help give private guided tours of the hall. And somebody once said to me, aren't you jealous that you don't live in a big house like this? I said, "No, I'm not. To be honest, I would not want the responsibility. You know, at Holcomb, there's a centre, that beautiful Palladian house is at the centre of a 25,000 acre estate. There's 300 cottages there. Thousands of people work for it. The, uh, the responsibility of the Earl of Leicester to keep that going, um, to be the custodian of that land, I think I think is enormous. And I think the other thing that we, we try to get across through the magazine as well, just as you say, is like, say somewhere like Holcombe, it looks beautiful because it was planted for shooting. All those beautiful, lovely copses of trees, small woods, they were put there, for someone's pleasure and and that's what other people need to understand that the countryside just doesn't just look like it is through by a happy accident it's because through thousands and thousands of years all these incredible landowners have taken the time the effort and the money to to plant trees to maintain it so you know, to make sure that it's there for the future, you know they've done things that they could never have possibly seen in their lifetime, but how amazing and incredible that it's it stood the test of time and it's there now, but like you say it's um it's only there because the the farmers uh you know um are are growing their crops, make you know um rearing animals, and it all has a purpose, and that is something that we definitely. try try to reflect through our pages like you say it's not just it's not just the green and present land it's everything that goes goes on to maintain it and the people that work so hard to to make that happen and whose efforts should be better recognized.
0: I'm always like I have friends who are maybe not from the same idealistic places as myself but where people in the world would all understand what happens in the countryside. And they'll ask me questions. And I say simple things like, do you realise that probably without like shooting, most hedges wouldn't exist or without subsidy hedges wouldn't exist. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, because they wouldn't, because the farmer could have more land if we just took away the hedges. And then it's that understanding that's not being educated. It does does get me quite... um, Passionate that our British school system doesn't educate what happens in the countryside correctly. But also, that our shooting fraternity the, or our dog fraternity, the people listening to this right now, people who read your magazine, it's our responsibility not to argue. We don't need to argue, but to educate from a really loving place. Look, these people don't know what they don't know. It's a little bit like with us of our dogs, isn't it? We don't know that stuff. So let's educate them in a really nice, informative way so that they are better understanding
1: yes yes no totally with you I mean my husband feels very strongly about this too he often says you know it's such a shame that in schools you don't really have the nature table anymore do you remember when you you would found like a perhaps you'd found a a bird's nest on the ground or you'd found something and you took it in I mean I you know it probably would be really frowned upon now and, um, you know, or perhaps having a nature walk as a as a as a part of the lesson, because how can those how can those children understand and appreciate things if they if they don't see it or they're not allowed to get dirty? I mean, <laughs> I remember, you know, playing outside with my sister all the time, you know, making mud pies. I mean, I can't, <laughs> perhaps we were a bit we were a bit simple, but I can't I can't really um, imagine children, you know, many children wanting wanting to do that now. And uh, I mean, I was very cheered a couple of couple of weeks ago on this little shoot where I go picking up near Sir Nabus. um A friend of mine uh, earlier this year took in a Ukrainian family. Um, and the little boy, Markian, is only seven. Now he used to live on the 27th floor of a block of flats in Kyiv. Um, so you can imagine the sort of life that he's had before. And as soon as he moved in with Alan, he was totally captivated by Alan's three Labradors, and, um, and wanted to come out come out picking up. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he came and came and stood with me and my Labrador Nimrod. And Joe, I cannot describe to you the sheer joy of that boy just watching those dogs work. I mean, dancing a jig every time my Labrador bought a bought back a bird it was so exciting. I mean we picked up six birds on one drive and uh oh he just couldn't he couldn't contain himself I mean, he was cheering every time the gun shot a bird and then sort of saying oh no come on every time they missed I mean it was hilarious part of me was sort of thinking you know because there's all this etiquette that you're supposed to be quiet during the drive and, and there's marking sort of bouncing up and down and jumping and shouting for joy but do you know what nobody cared because you know this little boy's joy and enthusiasm was so infectious and it made me and I think everyone else who was out on that day just sort of think goodness me how lucky are we to be part of this to be able to do this to to enjoy this countryside to watch those dogs working and um yeah it uh gave me a bit of a wake-up call really so yeah I think um we should all be doing, all be doing more to sort of promote the positive, um, you know, aspects of everything we do, because if we don't explain it, then people, people will not understand.
0: What that little boy was like showing you all, is what we all feel inside, isn't it? Like, there's nothing that I love more than watching my dogs work. I, it enthralls me, you know, I was probably late to the, to to the party, because I was never even meant to do this. My first um, time i worked a dog i was given a trialing dog by my father and said get in the beating line i was like what i I had no clue i was on a mistake. i was like literally watching the dog made me look far better than i should have because literally i had no clue what was going on Um, and she did a wonderful job all day but i just think from the minute that day because i was brought into it to help me fight my ptsd But that day, I forgot I had PTSD because I was so enthralled watching her and exercising and being part of everything that I had no time to think worrying thoughts. Mm. And I think a lot of people, they miss that as well, don't they? By not being part of a country, you don't have to be part of shooting, but even just being out with your dog, walking, understanding what's going on around you, they miss that ability to let go of worry.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, I I I I I thoroughly agree and think that my dog and the dogs that I've had over the years have definitely helped my mental health. Um I mean, you know, my my job is fabulous, but it's also high pressure and it it um it requires a lot of hours and there's deadlines, you know, it's um you and if you're an anxious person then obviously sometimes it is it's going to be overwhelming at times particularly when we do sort of big issues like we did back in the summer we did a guest edit with our now queen consort Um, that issue was double the size that we would usually produce in a week and you know was was pretty full-on so to to be able to just take my dog out I'm not even necessarily training um but just to be able to take him out for a walk and switch off for for five minutes and, and concentrate on him I I just think it's wonderful and I can I I had a Labrador since I was um in my early 20s and I you know I never I never ever you know want to be at a stage where I'm without a dog because I think um yeah it definitely definitely helps because like you say you can go into their world instead of your own and actually it's a very nice place to be.
0: What is it about the countryside and um, sport? what does it what does it mean to you because obviously your job is very much heavily involved there. your background is much heavily involved there. but but what does it mean to you what does it give you?
1: Joe, I think I think it's everything to me you know I mean I'm I'm sat now, just looking out the window, I can see a rainbow <laughs> of all things—beautiful rainbow in a grey sky—and and you know the the breeze fluttering through the through the trees and the leaves. And I just think I actually feel really emotional about it, and it's it's something that was brought home to me when we lived in Scotland. And Scotland is a you know fabulous, most beautiful, awe-inspiring place, but it's also quite a hard place to live. And I think when we lived there, I really missed the landscape of the West Country. And it was interesting when you were talking about hedges and trees because we in Scotland, we were on the edge of this of this moor, which has its own, you know, beguiling, bewitching appeal. But, you know, it's pretty bleak. Um, there aren't many. There aren't many trees. There's lots of grey stone. It's, you know, it's far colder up up there. And I just found myself wanting to be back in the landscape that I knew and and I now I just I thank my lucky stars that we managed to find this place um in in Dorset which I didn't I didn't know very well until we moved here we live in a tiny hamlet and it's it's something for me about the those sort of that the hills the way that the woods sit on the way that it would sit in the valley the way that the the light hits everything and I just um yeah I I just think we are so fortunate to live in the countryside and I would you know I would do anything to maintain it as it is and to protect it and to hopefully ensure that you know people who come come after us can can enjoy it as as much as as we have been able to do it's really like listening to you and your passion for it. When uh we were
0: clearing dad's stuff out this week, because dad passed three years ago, only now we're really getting around to his stuff. We found the badges for when we'd marched through horse and hound for um for fox hunting. And I can always remember being there with dad, and he was he was marching through the middle of London. And we got to the tube, and there was this lady, I can still see her now, and I was still I was young at the time. There was a lady with a baby in the pram and like loads of shopping and she was trying to get down the tube steps and people were pushing past her mm-hmm. so my dad and and the master fox and stopped and offered to help and first of all she looked frightened that somebody had stopped to offer to help and then she sort of came around and realized it was going to be easier to, to accept the help and when we got down the tube this all my father and a lot of the other people were talking about was how much they'd gone there because they had to but they couldn't wait to get out of there, out of that environment, out of that out of that concrete jungle, out of that fact that they just couldn't see the like the things you've been talking about. They couldn't see that view. They couldn't see the light playing against the landscape. All those things. And I am listening to you. I think people who love the countryside. It's that stuff we see is now, and we do feel an enormous passion to protect it.
1: Mm yes yes for sure i mean i i remember those marches as well and i mean i was i was living in london at the time but um how incredible it was to sort of see that sea of tweed almost wasn't it um you know descend on the capital and i know exactly what you mean i remember being on the tube and and people were uh, quite hesitant. And it was quite strange to see all these people talking to each other because obviously nobody talks on the tube or on the bus or anything. But it didn't take long, did it, for people to sort of start asking questions and, again, for this for this understanding to develop of, of why all these people would feel so passionately and feel the need to go into the middle of London to, to, you know, to stand up and be counted. And, you know, I mean... It's inter- It's always interesting to me, having grown up in a sort of shooting background and gone hunting. And there's this, you know, sometimes there can be this sort of slight line, can't there, between the, the the two sports and differing views, different ways of doing things. But you know, that all fell away, didn't it? Everyone, everyone came together, you know, to 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 basically to go and fight and to make our voices heard. And um, yeah, what a what a moment. Um, But um, yeah, I just I just feel that all of us, like like you say, we must we must continue to try to keep speaking up. We shouldn't hide our light under a bushel. I think there is a tendency for us. We know we're all quiet, polite people. um, We don't like to cause a fuss, but um, but we do need to actually say sometimes instead of perhaps sitting there quietly in the corner. Um, we do need to say why we do things and why we love it and, and why and why it is important because it, it it will help.
0: And I can like when we found these badges, I can remember reading the small one, it is by the countryside alliance and it says, um uh, forced to uh, something like forced to march, ready to fight. And I thought it said everything. Nobody wanted to be there. It just we had to do it. And now 20 odd years on, we still fight. To protect what the uk should want to protect as a whole we should all regardless of where we live should want to protect what could be so easily lost do you think the magazine the work you do is it important to you that you know you leave a legacy along that line you you're consistently showing people what a beautiful place the countryside is
1: oh yes and em- em- emphatically and um so we we're trying, I suppose in some ways, we are giving an idealized uh, view of the countryside. I mean, you'd be interested to know that about 30 percent of our readers live live in London, which shows that for some of them, you know, it's it's a sort of a lifestyle that they aspire to, rather than that they live so therefore you know there is this responsibility to to tell it how it is but i'm i'm confident that we always do that because we we speak to people all the time we're reflecting people's views um you know those those who do live and work in the countryside and and therefore so i think it is quite a powerful way of explaining and it's not you know not just about field sports it's about farming, it's about people who breed certain types of dogs, not necessarily um, you know, um for, you know, for for you know, working breeds. It's just trying to get across all these different passions that people have and and what they are all doing in in their individual way to enhance this this place. And yeah, it's it's um we'll keep going basically. <laughs> i think you know my boss my boss always says he thinks that country life will be the last magazine on the newsstand and i think i think he's he's probably right there is
0: something so lovely though about a magazine you know when i get the copy of the Dog journal i look at it and i think i just really like it's it's like it's almost like a little luxury because i find even though we work a lot on social media or groups are online um when you have something physical, there's nothing else value you for your attention. You can't hold your phone and read, so you have to like give it your focus. And for that time, it's almost like calm um, in your mind. It can just you know you can just read the pages, you can just look at the pictures, and it's it's a it's almost a sense of peace from it.
1: Yes, yes. I mean that's one thing. That's why we take so long, sort of choosing choosing all the images because. Um, oh. um you know we it's it is a big format magazine we can we can take the images across a double page spread and we are we're quite old-fashioned in the sense that we um we're still able to commission photographers as well to go out to illustrate our our pieces and of course I mean I have you know you know great affection for for the dog pieces so I'm just looking at a magazine at the moment where my my friend Susie and her chocolate Labrador bedlam is is on the is on the front cover and um and an article inside, and it's so lovely to to look at that. And I wish I sometimes wish you could see um, the process we go through um, to sort of you know, there's so many images and layouts that are dis- discarded, if you like, in the quest to to make sure that it appeals as, as much as possible and it's quite an interesting job because it's quite subjective obviously I could look at a, a picture and think that's lovely the picture editor will like another one the editor will like another one but but we usually um we don't fight that much <laughs> we usually come to it I think it's like it's like most things when 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 a layout works when the images work it's pretty clear to everyone that that's the that's the right one to choose but there have been there have been times when you sort of have um you know three or four different versions of an article up on the wall and we've stood there pondering for for quite a long time you know which which one should be best and and there's also a a lot of thought that goes into to the order of the pages you know the rhythm of the magazine and I guess again that's that's something that's very satisfying um is you know at the end of the day you're just trying to cap you're in we're in the entertainment business we're trying to capture people's imagination and ensure that they do sit down for maybe you know an hour or so every week and like you say switch everything else off perhaps um it's raining now but um you know, sat in front of the fire with a nice cup of tea or a glass of wine and just sit down and disappear into this world, which is actually the real world, but give, give yourself a chance to maybe read about the subjects that maybe you thought you knew about, but you but you, actually we found a little bit of snippet, a bit more that perhaps you, perhaps you didn't realise.
0: When um, I was younger, I did a degree in documentary photography in Newport, and we had a chap and he used to make us take 300 uh, shots on a manual, and we were only allowed to pick five that had to tell the story. And he showed us, uh, he covered foot and mouth, he'd covered it professionally, and he showed us the images from it, Um, showed us as an example, five that could tell the whole story. And I remember looking at them thinking, it's amazing. What can be conveyed in a photo that can, you don't always need words. The right photos can tell you everything that you need to know, can't they?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Joe, I was laughing with some of my colleagues the other day, because obviously I'm so old, I'm I'm 49 now that when I started out on local newspapers, you know, we had it was film, a camera with film in it. And um I can remember going into the dark room and having to pull it out, you know, in the dark and then develop the pictures. And you sort of think, goodness, how did we how did we ever do that now? You know, in this in these days of digital photography, but but that's how it used to be. And um and and you're quite you're quite right that images you know images tell you know pictures tell a thousand words or whatever and um sometimes we have quite a debate in in the office about how many words we're going to you know include for a story when sometimes the you know the picture is is doing the doing the better job but I mean obviously I'm the features editor so I've got to keep fighting for the words <laughs> but um but yeah, it's a it's a it's a really good balance, and sometimes um we can have an article in, and it will be the pictures that absolutely lift it. And that was it was something that uh, when when we did the um special issue with um well Duchess of Cornwall as she as she was then, and and when she asked our now Princess of Wales to take the cover images goodness me that was so exciting so exciting because our our new princess of wales she was so talented that she she's i mean honestly joe she submitted about 14 images and we could have used every one of them it was very hard actually to edit it down um to take three forward to our our now queen consort and ask her to choose which which image she wanted. And um, yeah, so fair play, fair play to her. She's um, yeah, our Princess of Wales is a very, very talented photographer.
0: That must be an incredibly interesting part of your job, though, is like, you know, like these types of features, these types of additions where you are. I find the the countryside is quite an equalizer. People who would maybe never Rub shoulders in real life can all be on that field laughing and joking together your magazine sort of does that doesn't it you're talking to you know one person down here who may be beating on an estate and then the next minute you're talking to the queen consort do you love that part of your job
1: yes i mean it's it's interesting because country life i think is perceived as a magazine for posh people and i i understand that i think you know it's it's read by you know, our, our aristocracy, our great landowners. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't appeal to everyone, um, including me, the gamekeeper's daughter who is, you know, educa- educated at a grammar school. And um, you're you're quite right. And so therefore, to even so when we've Well, you know, been so fortunate to to meet royalty. We've done we've done two special issues with our now king. Um, we've done a special edition with the princess royal, and of course, and then earlier this year with our queen consort. And like you say, what it comes down to actually is this shared love of the countryside, which transcends class. And it's um if you have a common interest and something that means you know a lot to you, then. Um, you know the the king is also passionate about trees and hedges just and, and wildflowers in in the manner that that we would be and they love talking about it and the other thing that we find with country life as well is that even the most private of people who perhaps wouldn't want to talk to the press if you ask them about your their dog <laughs> you're away you know more people are happy to talk about their dogs than than anything else and uh you know what a what a what a treat that is i mean we've even had we had sting's wife talking about her you know irish wolfhounds and did the most fun, fabulous photo shoot with her because yeah because at the end of the day it's it's um, everyone has their own hobbies and things that mean so much to them but if we're able to share those through the pages of our magazine then how brilliant and we will yeah we will keep keep trying to um include as many interesting nuggets and and people's life stories as as we can
0: speaking about dogs I first met you on Instagram (laughs) isn't that such an odd thing to say I met you on Instagram (laughs) you didn't know I was stalking you at the time but I find Instagram quite stalky because you you read one thing somebody writes and then you're like Ooh, I'll go to their profile and I'll follow them. And then I start reading like every image. And I feel like 20 minutes later, I've known everything's gone on for a year in their life. So I've watched all your stuff with your dogs and, and definitely with Nimrod. Your passion for Labrador's, for your passion for picking up is that like a huge part of what makes you you?
1: <laughs> yes, for sure. I mean, I should think my dad and my sister, if they're listening to this, they're cringing because they're big Spaniel people. Um, But I always, I remember when I was growing up, um, my dad had one Labrador um, called Pip. And um, I mean, sadly, he didn't end, you know, he didn't get on with my dad's dogs. And uh, he ended up going to a friend of his to go picking up. But I think I vowed to myself from that day that as soon as I could do I was gonna have a black Labrador so I had my first one boot when I was in my early 20s and that oh my dear dog he went everywhere with me I mean he uh he lived in London with me when I was on horse and hound he used to come into the office and um I mean in those days it was quite strange having a dog in London I mean people used to try to help me across the road because I think with him being a black Labrador they just assumed that I was blind or something um but he would yeah he'd go everywhere he'd go up and down escalators you know on the bus So he he was brilliant as you know dogs are they just get used to their environment don't they where whatever that environment might be but I never I never really trained him properly I took him I took him picking up but really he you know he was he was a pet Um, And when I first met my husband, I thought, oh, goodness me, he's going to force me to put boot in the kennel and boot is not going to like that. But actually, Simon was very good about it and said, no, that dog's looked after you. You know, we'll look after him. So he was privileged. He was allowed to be in the house with my with my husband's terrier, Tiggy. So um, and then but when we when we got to um, Holcomb, I thought, well, I better (laughs) going to be the head keeper's other half I better try to um you know have a better behaved dog so I was lucky there because again you just you meet all these lovely people and there's um a lovely lady called Dion Ryan who has um she ran her dogs in the retriever championships and she was very kind and helped helped me to train mine I had another Labrador called Sock um yeah a bit of a theme going on with those names um and she helped me and I loved I just loved picking up there and then also also in Scotland even though um sadly we never got to shoot grouse at Langham I um I missed picking up so much that I actually went picking up on a local local rear bird shoot and I yeah took my my Labrador sock and and um and my and um, my husband's other uh, Labrador Josh. I enjoyed it so much. But yeah, when um so my 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 dog that I have now, Nimrod, is four years old. I'm um, I tried again. to. I think we're always trying to develop, aren't we? Always try to improve. And um I was um fortunate through Instagram to find the dog trainer Ben Randall, who's run, won the Cocker Championship twice. And, and again, it just shows you. Like we were saying earlier, how things have changed, how we consume our media, how we learn. And I think the pandemic, didn't it? We we had so much time at home, perhaps, to start looking at things that you wouldn't have normally looked at. And I can remember seeing this um, video on Instagram of all Ben's dogs sort of all sort of lined up. Um, with all these food bowls in front of them. And he was able to sort of, you know, call them forward individually or stop them and do it. And I was thinking, goodness me, I, you know, I've never had control like that. You know, I sort of, you know, been one of those people where uh, I, you know, but just keep my dog on the lead during the drive. And um, because if I let them off during it, well, you know, that would be a disaster. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, I'm going to try try to sort of, um, follow his regime, and I must say, I I think it's absolutely brilliant, and it's something that's worked for me, particularly um, as someone who um, you know has a very demanding job and has to be sat at her laptop a, a lot of the time. I mean, I, mean, I don't you see my dog now? He's um he's asleep with his head on the on the step. Then <laughs> finally learned to. switch off but what I found with Ben's methods is because a lot of it is around meal times and getting your dog to sit to be patient and wait for his food which you know with a Labrador is quite a a big ask it's something that I can do on a daily basis anyway even if I haven't got an hour to go out and and throw dummies and do whatever I mean I do obviously we're very fortunate. We have um, a field behind our house here where where I can take Nimrod. So, but I I I do think there's. I mean loads of dog trainers have lots of different methods and it's like anything as some you know it's horses for courses isn't it something works for some one person doesn't work for another but this particular method works for me and the other thing about being part of the community and i think you, obviously you must find with your group that is so successful is this coming together of like-minded people. So some days it doesn't go well, does it? You can you can put in all this homework. You can try as hard as you can, but maybe a small problem will develop and it's it's so easy to get downhearted and um, demotivated. But what I find is on Instagram, if you're honest enough to maybe post a story and say, well, actually, without picking up today and this went wrong or his delivery's gone to pop, All my lovely friends um, are straight in there with, you know, a direct message going, oh, you know, don't worry about it. This happened to me the other day and, you know, keep going. You're doing really well. And it's so nice because I know lots of people you know, are very down on social media. They don't like it. They think it's this terrible thing that sort of consumes too much of our time. And obviously it can be really negative. And, and some people do use it as a combative space where they feel that they need to be aggressive and win an argument or whatever. But actually on the other side of it, and particularly I, I think with, with gun dogs and other small sort of interest groups, this can, can be a real um, power for good. I think and for, for meeting people like you say we wouldn't have perhaps we wouldn't our paths wouldn't have crossed we wouldn't we wouldn't have spoken um and actually it's a really good thing and I'm glad that Instagram ended up introducing us
0: I too and I think you're absolutely right to the balance like it is hard to get balanced it's very easy to get like sometimes I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at one thing and next minute I'm looking out to Ikea hacker wardrobes, looking at something <laughs> else and I'm like how did I get here? And, and I have to, I find it sometimes very difficult to focus on what I'm trying to get out of it. But on saying that, it is the other side of that. Like, I would literally say my best friends in the world have come through, like, our community. They found us on Instagram. They found us on Facebook. Then they've come part of our community. And then we've talked and we've chatted. And they literally are the people I go to probably every day about not just dog stuff now just life because they're like-minded and I know they'll understand my frustrations or my fears or whatever and community I think is something that is so important because dog training can be so isolating so having that like group like for us it's just all women and we just chat about whatever you know we three times a month we get together and we just like what how do we fix this how do we fix this how do we fix this and it's having those other people who can just see something that maybe you can't because you're too close to it. Um, it is really exciting to have those people to help you on the journey, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah, I, I, it's, it's. So, I feel exactly the same. It is so valuable to me. I mean, I went to the game fair this this year and finally met a lot of the people I'd been ch- chatting to online, and. Do you know what? <laughs> they were just every bit as fabulous in real life as I knew where they were going to be. And in fact, they were just sort of like they were even better. And I just I just felt so thankful that, that they're there. You know, they're your biggest cheerleaders. We all try to help each other out. Like you say, there are lots of there are always lots of different ways of tackling a problem. And and I think particularly on something like Instagram, where if you are able to post a video, um, say specifically with your gun dog training, people will see something small that you didn't even realize that you were doing. And they can point out to you that actually, well, if you stop doing that, Paula, then you know that might help. I mean, Ben is always saying to me, "Stop saying things five times." You know, you're chatting on. You know, but I'm a bit like that with my dog. I talk to him as if he's a human being. You know, Um but also I think as well, the, the other good thing is that I've I've never been I've always been quite soft, probably too soft, if you like. But that's important to me. I I I you know I don't want to bully my dog into doing anything. I want him to do it because he understands and he wants me to do it and it's a positive thing and I think that's the other thing that's growing at the moment is that there is a there's more there's a shift isn't there I think probably in dog training perhaps in the last 30 40 years or whatever where it's where it's changing and different methods are being adopted so sort of things that were perhaps done with guide dogs or or other training methods because you know dogs are so clever. And and most of the time, it's not that they're being naughty or ignoring you or, you know, being deliberately belligerent. It's because you're not conveying it properly or your body language is wrong or there's something. And I actually I find that I find that really fascinating um, that the more the more you learn, the more you can teach your dog and a sort of, you know, the the happier, more trusting relationship you know you you can develop and um, who wouldn't want to do that I think the more I
0: the more I listen and the more I learn the more I see the challenges I've had in the past were actually of my doing not not having a negative you know like judgmental view of my own uh training because we don't know what we don't know but almost because as I learn I see how my inexperience was just confusing the dog and we have this conversation all the time and you'll probably agree completely with me on this you never ever put a brand new rider on a on a brand new horse it would never ever happen it would be a recipe from disaster from the start you take a brand new rider you put them on a schoolmaster and you think let one job one teach the other the job in dogs we just don't have that so it's pretty much always a brand new person with a brand new dog who is a it's the blind leading the blind it's almost confusing from the start because neither side knows what's happening and I take my hat off to people who are new even more than experienced people because experienced people have had the time to develop their knowledge and understanding it's, it's not as, as hard it's still hard to train a dog but it's not as hard a new person the new dog they need to be applauded for the fact they even try in.
1: yes yeah for sure and and the other thing that I think I've learned over the years is you know the different characters of our dogs aren't they they're so I mean even you know even I say you know Nimrod's my third Labrador I uh, who I've owned from a pup um, I was fortunate also to be given another lovely dog um, uh, a few years back who was beautifully trained by someone else thank goodness not me um, but they're so quirky even within that breed and there are different there are different things aren't there? they then and they all they all respond differently to things. So it's um yeah, it's utterly fascinating. There is so much to learn. We never stop learning. I just I love talking to people about it. I could talk to them all day. In fact, I met a fellow journalist um a couple of weeks ago who I've not seen for years and years and years. I once did work experience on the independent newspaper and he was on the racing desk and he anyway. Anyway, he, the long story short is that he's got a Labrador now as well, and we just probably talked <laughs> for about an hour, mostly about our dogs, and I just love it. It's such a way of of connecting people, and there's so much we can learn from each other, and uh, and and thank thank goodness.
0: Absolutely agree thank you for this I always say at the end of these that people listening walking their dog have either had you know like quite a short walk or they've they've gone for a while and I definitely think today they'll be like oh my god you made me walk four miles um, but it's, it's all good and it's always definitely worth the extra exercise that your dog will thank you for it if anyone wants to find you on Instagram how would they do that? So my account is at Paula S. Lester. Fantastic. And obviously, if they want to find you in Country Life, they, they can do that quite easily through the website. Thank you so much for talking to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, it has been an absolute delight. And you're just as wonderful to talk to in life as you are to watch on Instagram. If people want to buy Country Life, where,
1: where would, would they purchase it? Joe, you're so kind to say that I mean it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as well and I think we probably could have gone all gone on all day but anyway and <laughs> um, the best place to find Country Life is your sort of you know traditional news agents such as WH Smith but also in Waitrose and um, and also obviously the very best thing is to have a subscription and we do do a very good deal where you can get six six issues for six pounds i think it is and that's that's a that's a good way of sort of dipping dipping into it and um seeing what a fabulous magazine it is obviously i'm biased but there is a heck of a lot for you to read every week fantastic i'll put a link to the subscriptions in the show notes for those of you
0: who want to go along and see that thank you very much again paula thank you to our listeners for staying with us for what has been a wonderful podcast and we look forward to speaking to you all next week. Thank you for listening to LWDG Dog with me, Joe Parrott. Now we all know training a dog takes time, energy and patience, but our lives can be really, really busy. Don't worry, the LWDG has got you covered. Join us for our free planning workshop, where we'll show you how to use short 10-minute training sessions each day to fast-forward your dog's education. Our experts have years of experience in training dogs and will help you get started on the right foot. Register now and start making progress with your furry friend today. Go to our Facebook page, the Ladies Working Dog Group, and click on the pinned post or visit www.thelwdg.com.